Okay, Hebrews chapter 7. Um, I feel like we could start reading back in chapter 5, at the actually end of chapter 4. This whole section is huge. It all goes together. It all builds on what came before. It is hard just to jump in and start looking at a section, but we have that task this morning. So I'm going to actually start reading in chapter 7, verse 11, just to pick up some continuity, and then we'll read through and cover our passage for today. So starting in chapter 7, verse 11, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced, through which we draw near to God. And verse 20 is where we'll start this morning. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Mm -hmm. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later, then the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. We'll pause there. We're actually going to cover more than that, but that's a a good enough chunk to think about right now. Um, So coming right into the section, we start off with this idea of an oath, and that certainly comes out of what was previously said. Um, And it's establishing the superior priesthood of Christ and using the oath as one of the bases for that superior priesthood. Now, when you hear this, and if you've been following along and reading along in Hebrews, you hear oath, you should go right back to the end of chapter 6. Yeah, that's where this is. the oath is talked about more in more detail than it is here in chapter 7, in verse 20. But there's a lot of connecting points that we want to draw from the end of chapter 6. So, if you look back at the end of chapter 6, starting in verse 13, the author is bringing in some important concepts based on God making an oath. Um, And he says right there in verse 16, the oath is final for confirmation, talking about when people swear by something greater than themselves, the oath is final for confirmation. Um, And it also says in that section that an oath made by God is guaranteed because of another characteristic of God. What can God not do? in this context, lie, right? So, if God makes an oath, 
right? He is doing two things at once. He is making an oath and then guaranteeing it because he cannot lie. Right? So everything that God says comes to pass, um, and that is confirmed here as we as we read in those verses at the end of chapter six. So <laughs> when we talk about the priesthood of Christ, and when Christ comes as the priest in the order of Melchizedek, and his priesthood is established by an oath, right? It reminds us of the surety of that from the things we learned back at the end of chapter six, right? God is making this oath. He is establishing the priesthood of Christ by an oath. Therefore, it cannot change. It cannot end. It is going to happen. Right? The law was different than that. And that's what the, the contrast is in chapter 7. At the... Uh, let's see, where was this? Great. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 7. He's talking about the law... And it's set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And then he says in verse 20, and it was not without an oath. And then down to verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. So the law failed. Not in what it was intended to do, right? But it failed in redeeming the people. And we have to understand it was never intended to do that. So it, God's purpose in the law did not fail, right? But the law could not save, right? So something better has to come along, something through which we can draw near to God. And so the, the oath that establishes the priesthood is shown to be the superior foundation. So the law produces a Levitical priesthood. The oath produces... Christ's priesthood after the order of Melchizedek and that is superior because the foundation is superior. Right? The oath supersedes. The oath comes after. The oath is better than the law. Does that make sense? Right? Better foundation, better result. So if we take those concepts from the end of chapter 6, we can apply this to the superior priesthood of Christ and we can say that we who have trusted in this can have strong encouragement to hold fast to this hope. Right? This is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul like John talked about last week. Right? The, the priesthood of Christ, trusting in His work as a priest on our behalf, is a reason that we have a sure and steadfast anchor for our souls. Something that is not going to change because it's an everlasting situation. And so at the end of verse 19 in chapter 7, the author says, through which we can draw near to God. Right? And that is the beautiful, awesome reality that can happen now because of what Christ has done. Who drew near to God in the Old Testament? Only one old leader. Yeah? <laughs> the high priest, right? Most specifically, he was the only one to actually enter the Holy of Holies. You could say the priests in general drew near to God because they worked in the tabernacle. But the amazing thing about Christ as a high priest is he's not the only one who gets to draw near to God. Right? He enters in and then because of him and through him, we also can enter in and draw near to God. 
a completely superior priesthood and one that is eternal. So in verse 22, this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. We're starting to see some of the reasons that it's better. And we'll continue on in this priest, Levitical priest, Melchizedekian priest contrast here. Verse 23, the, the old former priests, the Levitical system set up by the covenant given to Moses and to the people of Israel, those priests were many in number. Right, you go through the Old Testament and you have Aaron being the first priest. Um, another significant priest is Eli. Um, you certainly have bad priests throughout the Old Testament. Hophni and Phinehas, two of Eli's sons, are probably two of the more significant ones. Um, when Jesus is on earth, there's two high priests, which is kind of odd and strange. And so you just see the system that is, that is broken. Right? And the priests are many in number. Because they died. Why did they die? Because they sin, right? And that's the other huge, important reality about those priests. Right? They didn't just die because they were human, right? Death comes because of sin. And so every one of those priests had sin. Every one of those priests was in and of themselves broken and fallen. And so there were many of them, and so they died. But he, verse 24 of chapter 7, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Can you imagine the, the just unconscionable frustration if Christ was the perfect priest, but he died? I mean, that doesn't make sense. You die because of sin. If he was perfect, he wouldn't. But, but if he was the perfect high priest and he died... Like, you have it. It's there. It, and, and then it's gone. Right? It is absolutely necessary for him to live on forever. So if that were to occur, you'd have to say, okay, what's next? Mm-hmm. And, and would, would, would be, <coughs> yeah. perfection of one would be uh, mm. heresy, I think. Well, yeah, it, this can't... He can't die. Like if if he dies, like Paul says, you know, in I believe it's First or Second Corinthians, if Christ is not raised, right, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. And it's the same thing that applies here. Yeah, yeah. And in a sense, they were right. You know, if he's dead, all this was for naught. All this was pointless. There's no there's no hope to look forward to. <clears throat> But he is permanent because he continues forever. And therefore, verse 25, he is able to save to the uttermost. Right? He is able to save to the uttermost. The flip side of that is our sin deserves judgment to the uttermost. Right? Uh, sin against a holy, eternal God deserves a righteous, eternal punishment. Our sin deserves the utmost in punishment. Therefore, Christ saves to the utmost. The youth group wants to know, does that salvation have application to the unconverted in the gospel? Or is it strictly for believers? And if it is, how are believers saved? I don't understand the difference between the unconverted in the gospel. Because that would mean salvation, right? Well, consider he, that's Jesus, mm-hmm. the great high priest, saves to the uttermost. Right. Who, who are the ones that are being saved to the uttermost? Yes. 
Okay. So it's everybody who comes to him and believes in him as their priest, as their savior, as their redeemer. So it is only believers. Um, it can't be everyone in the sense that, just as a comparison, that the Levitical priest you know, did a work for all of the nation of Israel. Um, right? Christ doesn't do a work for all of humanity, but he rather does it for his people. Yeah, the text tells us it was for it's for those who draw near to God through Him. There is. If, you don't know, if you don't draw near to God through Jesus, you're nowhere near Him. Mm-hmm. You're lying to yourself, you're deceiving yourself, and yeah. danger eternally not being near Him. Yeah. Except in His wrath. Amen. And if Mr. George would ever read the context of the text that we're studying. This was the youth group. What a running hook! Ed two taught in the youth group. Because we all know he hasn't been here for two solid weeks. Suffering. Suffering. Okay. We're looking for a new elder. So Hebrew three six says, "But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence." The the context is leading up to this place. We're the we're the fruits of Christ's labors, and we are His house. Yeah. And you really start to see the author of Hebrews hitting hard this, this emphasis that's been throughout the book. How could you go back? What, what is back there for you? you know, he, he continues forever. He's the permanent high priest who is perfect. He guarantees a better covenant. You can draw near to God through Him and you want to go back to killing goats and, and rams and lambs. You just see this, this building. And when you look at that old sacrificial system, you look at the Old Testament, you realize that you know the priest comes and he is ordained as a priest. He starts to serve and animals are sacrificed and killed. And again and again and again that happens. And so you never have this finality to atoning for sin. It just happens again and again. And then say you have a really good high priest who's who's faithful to the Lord, faithful to the law, and then he dies, and then somebody else rises up and everything starts over again. And the sacrifices don't stop. And the high priest never gets to that point where he can finish and sit down and the work is done. Like It is a continual system of effort and work. It's all dependent on man's effort and man's will and man's work. And and the failure of it is is what it was presented to, to show. Yeah. And, and so all of a sudden now, everything is God's work. Yeah. And God's perfection. Yeah, we're getting there. Along with what he's saying, I think it's difficult for people to accept the idea that Christ did it all and there's nothing you can do. Mm. Because the Jews had centuries of something that they did that brought them into a right relationship with God, or at least they thought so. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that's true of all people. I mean, there's two kinds of religion in the world. There's the one that says, do so, do this, and the other one says, it's already done. Yeah. And that's difficult for us to accept. But I think that's where the faith comes in that says, there's nothing we can do that has been done and accept that. Yeah. The, the thing that we should pull from the Old Testament when we read it, or the thing that Jews should have seen, when, when something is being attempted over and over and over and over, it should not cause within us this desire to, all right, I can do it this time. Right? I, I'll, if I just work a little harder, try a little better, this time it will succeed. 
when you see something tried again and again and again and failing, it should create a longing for that thing that will finally actually complete the task, that will finish the work, that will do what has not been able to be done for all of history. Right? Um, Americans are very good at, well, you know, this has failed again and again and again, but I'm going to get it right. right? And this is not one of those scenarios. You're not going to get it right. You're not going to succeed. Um, And Christ comes because a, a moral, finite man, like the high priest, cannot eliminate a continual, eternal debt. Right, the high priest could not do this. And their death was a reminder they were insufficient. And so Christ comes and He is eternal. He is holy. He is perfect. And so He fulfills the role perfectly and then He dies but rises again to never die again and continually makes intercession. And so He is able to save to the uttermost. He is able to complete the work and eliminate the eternal debt that we owed. This needs to make us realize the, the, the pettiness and the, the, the insane ignorance of trying to please God and atone for our sins. Right? Israel, for all of its history, with all of its revelation, with all of these set up, with the tabernacle and everything that they had going, could not get it right. And that is not an invitation to work harder, like we just said. Right? This is a reminder, a reality set before us to realize that Christ is our only hope. Right? It's, it's easy for us to continue to try to earn, to try to work to receive some sort of favor from God. And even now, as Christians, right, we are not earning extra favor before God by serving Him faithfully. And you shouldn't want to. Because the favor you would get for your good works is so just minuscule and, and terrible compared to the favor you'll get by claiming Christ. And receiving His righteousness. Right? So, so even if you, as Christians, we can please God. But I'd rather have God pleased with me through Christ than on my own. Right? There is far greater joy and just, there's far more pleasure when God looks at me through Christ instead of on myself alone. Right? Even as a Christian. How does one balance uh, those situations? That's, that's where I find my, one of my biggest struggles with. You know, in my walk, how much time should I spend in the Word in the morning before I go to work? Yeah. Um, you know, what, what, what should my role be in any church or you know, Christian type of situation? How does, how does one balance that between, you know, you know what I mean, between uh, overemphasis on work yeah. Um, certainly somebody can give an answer if they have a, a better one um, but the first thought that comes to my mind is we, we need to grow and develop our affections and our love for our Lord and, and let that drive everything in our lives and so it turns into 
a life that is not works, but it's a life lived of, I love my Lord and I'm serving Him. Right? And I say, hi Dave. <laughs> Dave. Dave is a, just a, a, a whiz-bang when it comes to sports knowledge and, and statistics and everything. It's, 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 it's eerie. But, <laughs> but the, you know, you don't, like, like NASCAR, you know how well you know NASCAR, right? Sure. You don't consider that a laborious work to be like observing that and learning it and knowing it, you know what I mean? And it no. just becomes a natural part of if somebody starts talking about NASCAR, you perk right up, and you get a whole bunch of information right at your tongue, oh, you know what I mean? Right. So you don't, you don't consciously think, gee, how much time should I watch NASCAR so that I get good at it? <laughs> you watch it a lot because you like it, right? Right. I mean, so, yeah. I, which is just what yeah. you said. Yeah. It's just what you said. It's your first. Getting that, nurturing that, that love for God, which is, I mean, it's not as easy as just, gee, why don't I love the Lord as much as NASCAR? I think that's overly simplistic. <laughs> or, or for me, why don't I love the Lord as much as I love whatever else I love? We, that, that's, that's overly simplistic and almost, you know, but yeah. I, I do think that, yeah, you just. Well, that's, that's where it grows. Yeah. The Holy Spirit is the answer. What we need to understand, um, and, and I think it's our culture and our society and. Just the whole idea of religion is that you know, we have to work towards something, we have to earn something. And as Christians, you know, we have to wrap our minds around the fact that we don't have to work towards anything because Christ has given it already to us. All the gifts we need, all the blessings, all the hope, we don't have to earn His favor you know, at all. So mm-hmm. we just have to live in obedience to Him. So to get rid of this, yeah. How long should I spend telling the word? How, you know, how many acts of service should I do you know, to please God? Whatever is good for you, because he's already got his own peace with you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. You can't expand on that. I think it's, there is no right or wrong answer to that. In the well, no, there's a wrong answer. You know, <laughs> 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 Probably a wrong answer. Well, turning into legalism mm. um, but let's be honest we can re- use that real easy as an excuse to not serve God faithfully because we're just <laughs> sinful and we want to well, do our own thing so well yeah but like if, if you just kind of you know leave it up to how you're feeling that particular day um, that's just not being a faithful Christian and that's not growing your love for God and that's why I said what I said like actively working to grow your love for God is where it starts it's not waiting to feel led or waiting to have the Holy Spirit grow a love in you. Right? We need to also be actively pursuing those things as God works in us. Yeah. Yeah. Because we'll take cop-outs real easy. Um, we're going to move on. We have a lot to cover. So, it is fitting, verse 26, it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained and separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Um, A very interesting and helpful alternate translation for this, and if you go to the NIV, it has it. Um, 
is that instead of for it is indeed fitting, it says such a high priest truly meets our need. Mm-hmm. Very different uh, nuance to that that verse there. Um, so it's just important for us to to hear that. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. ESV, I think NASB also says, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest. I give that alternate because you don't want to read that it was fitting and think that we somehow deserve this this high priest. Uh, We're not talking about how much we... it was fitting that we should have such a high priest. What I'm saying is the focus isn't on us. Right? It's fitting that we should have such a high priest. That, that's not the point. The point is that he was perfectly fit to do the work that he was given to do. Right? And so it, I think it helps us understand it to say that such a high priest truly meets our needs. Right? That's how he is fitting. He truly meets the incredible need that every sinner has. Um, and the author of Hebrews has used this fitting concept multiple times previous to this. And it talks in the previous context about his life, about his suffering, about his death. Um, and, and here is also bringing in his exaltation. Right? So this high priest, he is incredibly fit for the task. Right? He can understand us completely. He knows our struggles. He knows our difficulties. But he is not beset by weakness. Right? He is not like the Levitical high priests, but rather he is able to meet all of our needs with salvation being our greatest need. And so it is, it is far superior. It is far superior. Verse 27, he has no need like those high priests to offer, offer sacrifices daily first for his own sins and then for those of the people. Since he did this once for all, right? Superior, better. He is fit for the task. And then we kind of close out the idea of this oath in verse 28. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests. But the word of the oath, which came later than the law, it's superior, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So it comes after the law. It's superior to the law. It's eternal. And it brings a superior, more perfect high priest who is perfectly fit for the task. Chapter 8, verse 1. One of the more excellent verses in this whole section. Now the point in what we are saying is this. Whenever the, the Scripture says the point is this, pay attention. Your ears should perk up. If you're asleep, you wake up now and you start listening, right? The point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest. There's points throughout this book. There's points throughout all Scripture. You just need to stop and you just need to rejoice sometimes. Like You just... Forget studying, forget analyzing every word. Just stop and worship. Amen. Right? This is what, what Paul seems to do at the end of Romans 11. Right? He goes through all of this theology, all of this, this just salvific knowledge, and he just stops and he just worships. Right? It's, it's his doxological moment, and this is just a place where we need to have that. Amen. We have such a high priest. Mm-hmm. 
This is what the Israelites were supposed to see. All of that preparation wasn't supposed to make them work harder. It was supposed to make them long for this high priest. And we have him. If you're a Christian here, this takes on real and just a special meaning. You have him. He is yours. You are his. He's seated. All that work the Levitical priest did, Christ is seated. Done. It's over. Finished. No more work to be done. Salvation is accomplished. It's not going to change for eternity. He's seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. Compare that to the Levitical priests. And which one do you want? Which one do you want representing you? We don't want to lose sight of the point of Hebrews as we study through this. The Hebrews, or the people that he wrote to, were thinking to go back. And the author says, do you realize, do you see, we have such a high priest. Going back is deadly. Absolutely deadly. Because of what you're turning down. Um, I hesitate to say this a little bit, but does that not mean that Judaism, as we know it in the modern world, is really a dead religion? Mm -hmm. Completely. Yeah, completely. They missed missed the turn. Yeah. And went off the edge. Yeah. Yep. Completely. He is a minister... Let's read down through verse 7 just to get the, the flow of this, this next little section here. I'll start in verse 1 of chapter 8. Now, the point of what we are saying is this. That we have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent of the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Thus, it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For that first co- for if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And we'll, we'll pause there. Every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. And there are two temples, two tabernacles, as it were, that we're looking at here. You have the one on earth that was set up by Moses, That was a copy and a shadow. And then there is the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And that is the one in heaven. That is the one that Christ entered. So why would Christ not be a priest if he was... Sorry, why would he not be a priest on earth? Mm -hmm. There's There's a second reason. It's not explicitly in our text. As to why he would not 
be a priest on earth. Right, and that's that's what's mentioned in the text. It has to do with no. It has to do with the sacrifice. Well, he fulfilled the law. I mean, he completely fulfilled the law. I mean, as it says right here in the text, there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. Mm-hmm. There, is no, there is no more gifts according to the law to be offered. The law died with Christ. So it has to do with the sacrifice. Right, right. and in the well, the basic reason is he he didn't have a goat to offer, right? He didn't have a lamb to bring. Right? If he was a priest on earth, that's what he would have brought. But he wasn't coming to bring that. Right? He had something different to offer, and there was nothing on earth that could accept that offering. Right? But the, the, the whole reason for the priest offering the sacrifice was for himself first. Hmm? To cover his own sins. Mm-hmm. That was unnecessary in, in the case of Christ. Yeah. Um, but, but his offering was entirely different. Right? And so there was no place in the earthly tabernacle that Moses set up for the offering of Christ to be accepted because that was set up for lambs and goats and, and pigeons and whatever the law told you to bring for that specific sacrifice. Right? He could not be a priest here on earth. A, because it was already being done and that was of a different line of priests. But also because he was offering something completely different. Right? And as it says later in Hebrews... The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins. And that was the place on earth where the blood of bulls and goats was sacrificed and no sins were erased there. So Christ comes and He's of a different line, so He's not going to offer in that temple. He also has a different sacrifice that's going to accomplish a very different end. And so this temple can't take it. It can't handle that kind of offering. And He was never meant to give himself there, but rather in the true tent that was in heaven. And this again highlights the the complete failure of the Levitical system. It was ultimately ineffective. It had limited benefit and it didn't bring God's purposes to completion. Everything about the Levitical system was time, daily, yearly, monthly, festive. It was there was nothing eternal in it. Mm-hmm. Everything was time sensitive. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of time, this is a very big cog in the wheel. You skipped over it, but I could see why. I mean, it, it, it could disrupt the flow, so if you want to bypass it. <laughs> but verse 28. Uh-huh. For the law appoints men as high priests who are weak, but the word of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son made perfect forever. So, what was the oath? And then, how is that oath after the law? Because the mind automatically goes, well, in the eternal covenant between the Trinitarian persons, this is an oath that was done, you know, chapter 6 type of mindset, um, that it was made before the foundation of the world that the Son would come as the incarnate divine God, man, and fulfill the purposes of the Father. But this says the oath comes after the law. I, I think it's referring back to the, the verse quoted in chapter 7, verse 21. And also in verse 17. Are those things proclaimed in time in the Old Testament of what will be coming? That's right, that's what I think it is too. Yeah. The law itself becomes the oath. 
yeah. and the type of the incarnation of Christ who would come in relationship to his fulfillment of that law yeah. and being the righteousness of God apart from the law which Paul says in Romans yeah. Yeah. but Psalm 110 comes after the law mm-hmm. and the, the law came through Moses the Levitical system was established and operating but then years later Psalm 110 is written yeah. recording another another high priest. Mm-hmm. Right. It depends on how you just then start defining law in the Old Testament, sure. whether it's strictly from the Mosaic law, yeah. the law and the prophets, slash the law of the Old Testament. So, yeah, I agree that the division is essential right. there for us to kind of make that distinction, though. And I think it's contextually legitimate to say that the law in this sense refers to that which established the Levitical system, was given to Moses on Sinai, and kind of cap it at that. Right. Back to chapter 8. See where we want to pick up here. The, the, right, the Levitical system, again, is, is just being highlighted as that which could not do what was needed. Um, and, and we don't want to take that as God somehow failing, right? The Levitical system did exactly what God intended. It was never intended to do what Christ did. This brought up a question, just as we should, you know, do this all the time. You pause and you reflect, and you ask. You, you have times to worship. You have times to to contemplate and think about your own life. And this brings up one of those: Are we content to simply be a small part of God's grand plan? Because when you say that the Levitical system was ultimately ineffective and had limited benefit, did not bring God's final purposes to completion. And then you're considering that for hundreds and hundreds of years, these priests took part in God's established order, in, in His proclaimed law of doing all of these sacrifices. And then you come to the New Testament and, and it says that none of that did anything for sin. And so, if you're a priest and you, you look back on that, <laughs> do, do you kind of just sit there and say, well, then everything I did is fairly pointless, sort of? But, but not from the perspective of God's grand plan. But still, they weren't involved in the, the ultimate fulfillment. They weren't involved in the, the culmination. 
they were just a small part doing something that was simply pointing forward to something that was much better. And so are we content to simply be a small part of God's grand plan? Or do we feel a need to be involved in the big stuff, the significant things? Sometimes the small things are significant things. In this context, not really. (laughs) Sometimes the small things are just the small things. Doesn't mean they're not necessary, but there's significant things that happen in the Bible and most people aren't involved in them. Right? Yeah. Not everybody can be a giant. Yeah. Yeah. There are some that are given more notoriety, more significant (laughs) roles, uh, more things to do. And some are given the small things. And and the question is, are we content with the small things if that's where we're at? We need need to be. Yeah, I would would argue, I would push back about saying anyone is like more significant. Mm-hmm. I don't that terminology. I just don't think. Yeah, it's because <laughs> I don't think I see that John Piper's ministry, for example, mm-hmm. is more significant than mm-hmm. you know, you know, whatever, so the little person, the little you know, twelve yeah. church or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, so I'm, I'm thinking of it in the context of the Levitical yeah. priests, right? Yeah. They were very prominent in Israel. Uh-huh. But he comes to the New Testament and you realize that all they were was a signpost. Yeah. Pointing to something greater. Mm-hmm. That's it. Right? Mm-hmm. And can we be content being just a signpost? Yeah. I'm not trying to understand the question. Right. Can, can we be content with a, a what we might view as a kind of like a mundane role in serving God? Right. Or do, do we feel a, a in, in internal need to be Right, but maybe our role is. Do we, do we feel a need for a more prominent role, a more significant role in our minds? And this may be something that is just made up in our minds, significance or insignificance, but that's a real temptation that we can have. When we see Christians or people that seem to have a more significant, prominent role, we might start to feel jealous. No. Right? So the question is, can we be content with simply doing whatever it is the Lord has given us, whether or not... You know, it, it's it's a bigger or a smaller role in our minds. Actually, now I'm going to go with the sports analogy. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's like the, the player who doesn't get to dress for every game. In sure. hockey, we have a terminology called healthy scratches. <laughs> but if he practices hard and maintains the right attitude, it says, you know, when they, uh, they'll be glad when, the, when they call on me. That's that, the... That's really, I think, what, what Christ would be looking for in, mm-hmm. in any situation. If you know, even if somebody just cleans the toilet at church but then gets sick, you know, somebody could step up and uh, and do the job during that time. Yeah, and and I apologize for kind of a confusing question, but really, what we're getting at here is serving the Lord is what we ought to be doing, and. And it doesn't matter what the task is. Right? right? There, there's no greater, lesser when it comes to I am serving my Lord. And it doesn't matter how prominent in this world it is or how 
insignificant in this world it is. Right? I'm serving my Lord. Um, and it just struck me that all these, all this Old Testament system just points forward to Christ and prepare people for the Messiah. And in my mind, as a sinful human being, I'm like, well, well what was the point of it all then? Um, and that's not the right attitude, right? We're, we're serving. We're, we're doing what God has called us to do. And, and that can be helpful if, if say, you know, you're just a, a stay-at-home mom or, or dad, or say you're just a youth, right? Like, it's, it's not... I don't know. That's the word that gets you in trouble, brother. Don't worry, the just you live by faith. I'm sorry. Um, but that's a great point. They're not insignificant roles at all. Right? Right. We're all the bride. Yeah. There's no lesser bride or higher bride. We're all part of the bride. We all have the wedding dress. We have the baby. Yeah. We have the flowers. We have everything that we receive. We all receive the same, the same husband. Yeah. We gotta move on. I'm gonna. If I keep talking, it's gonna be bad. Yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> First thing you do, you find yourself in a home. So if you were on earth, you would not be a priest at all. The priests on earth serve, this is chapter 8, verse 5, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, see that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. We've been talking about this all along. The tabernacle was simply a shadowy replica. And again, you can hear the author of Hebrews telling the listeners, the readers, you can't go back to that. I used to build model airplanes as a kid, and you know, you paint them, you put decals on, they look really neat. You paint a little pile, you put them in the seat, and then you pick it up and you fly it around and you make the sounds and you do what a plane does. But then my dad would take us to air shows, right? And you watch a real person climb into the cockpit, right? And then you watch them turn the engines on and they go to the end of the runway and they light the after and the whole thing roars by and <laughs> and just to think of the stupidity of bringing my model airplane to an air show and just sitting in the back by the fence playing with that while the real thing is is in the skies overhead I mean that's exactly what the author here is saying it's like it was just shadows it was just signposts it was just something meant to cause you to look at the real thing once that came. And once you see the real thing, there is no going back to the shadow. There's no going back to the model. Stick with that which is real. Because... What do you think is a shadow for not an Old Testament Jew? Well, what shadows... And maybe you don't have an answer. It's just... Like, yeah. what, are, what are the shadows that we have? Uh, it's just, you know, we didn't grow up in... Levitical. We have nothing to do with the Mosaic Law. We never have. We never will. Even as yeah. unbelievers, we had nothing to do with the Mosaic Law. It wasn't for us. Yeah. So what? I, I sometimes think about that. You know, what things do we see and experience in life that are shadows of something that would be fully satisfied in Christ later? Any come to mind? I don't want to distract from where you go. That's going. funny. Um, I just think of like knowing in part mm. versus knowing fully on that final day. Um, yeah. Yeah. Marriage. Yeah. Seeing. Seeing Christ dimly versus face to face, all those little ways that we see Christ in His Word and the fellowship of believers and the church—it's—it's it's just a like a murky picture. Cool. Um, Thanks. That's all I got off the top. So, so this priest brought something much better and a much more excellent ministry. 
This is down in verse 6. As it is, Christ has obtained a ministry much more excellent than the old. As the covenant He mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. So, how is the new covenant more excellent than the old? It's permanent. It's permanent? Hmm? Every way. Every way? <laughs> Give me some specifics. <laughs> Written on hearts. Yeah, he's going to come to that in the, the quoted section that's from Jeremiah 31. God found fault in the people mm. and said, The time is coming when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel. Yeah. It's that he was showing them that the old covenant was if then. If you do this, then I'll do that. Mm-hmm. And it was always failing. Was, yeah. They always failed. Yeah. Even the priests failed. Mm-hmm. So it was like, I'm showing you time after time, you can't do this. Yeah. So I have to give you something better. Someone who's not going to fail, someone's going to do it perfectly. Yeah, and that's exactly what the author does here. He goes into this section of Jeremiah to contrast the two covenants and to point us towards the new. Verse 7, For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. And that makes complete sense, right? You don't need something different when what you're using is working perfectly. Right? But if there's a fault in what you are using, you do this every day. Right? Your pencil breaks, you go find a new one. Right? It, the, the tire blows out, you need a new one because it's faulty. Right? So there is no occasion to look for a second unless the first is faulty. And the first covenant was faulty. But not because God screwed up. Not because God uh, did not Im- uh, put something in place properly. Right? The first was faulty because of the people that were trying to keep the covenant. Right? Because it says in verse 8, For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. And that is the primary critical fault of the Mosaic Covenant. The people that came out of Egypt, what happened to them? Everyone over the age of 20 died in the wilderness. Right? Every one of them. Except for Joshua and Caleb. Two people. Right? Two people. You guys made it. Well done. Right? <laughs> the first covenant was faulty because it did not address the heart issue. Right? It could not change the heart of the sinner. And so the sinner did not keep the covenant, and so God did what He said in the covenant, and He judged, and He punished. Right? And salvation could not come through the first covenant because there was nothing in it that changed sinful man's heart. But that is what God intended. Right? The law came to do what? to show you your sin, to increase the trespass, as it says in Romans. The law came to increase the trespass. And the Levitical system was put in place to say, atonement needs to be made, but animals can't do it. So so there's something else you need. There's, There's 
faith that you need to have in the coming one. And that's how Old Testament people were saved, not by keeping the law, because they couldn't, not by trusting in blood of bulls and goats, because it wasn't effective, but by seeing the need for a Savior and trusting in that future Savior through the picture of the Old Covenant. Right? So this New Covenant is talked about in verses 10 through 12. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. And just start to hear the difference here. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. We're not just talking about memorizing the law. Right? The Jews did that phenomenally. Like, like, there, were, there were Jews that knew the Pentateuch by heart. That's the first five books of the Old Testament. You know those Leviticus numbers that you don't like to read? They knew it by heart. Oh, you mean like Uncle Gary? They knew it better than he did. He does. He'd be put to shame. Right? So we're not talking about memorizing it. We're talking about the truths being ingrained on the hearts of the people in a way that they love them and want to obey them. And that is not a sinner's heart. And God Himself will do this. And this was predicted in the Old Testament, but it's now fulfilled in the New Covenant. Secondly, verse 11, they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. This is a personal, experiential knowledge of God. Again, the Old Testament, the priests approached on your behalf, but we, in Christ, know God and can come into His presence. And that and the consummation of this will be when we see him face to face. And then lastly, and, and perhaps just most joyfully, verse twelve, I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Look at God's initiative in all this. I will make, I will put, I will write, I will be, I will forgive. I will remember their sins no more. That's the Old Testament way of um, speaking about justification. And once you start talking about justification, you start talking about law. And of course, the whole context of this is law. Mm. And how it's fulfilled in Christ. Yeah. The fault of the Old Covenant, of the Old Law, was the people. So in the New Covenant, God just takes all of the possibility of fault out and completes the work Himself and graciously gives it to us. That is a glorious God. There's a quote from one of the commentaries I read, and this gentleman, I can't pronounce his name, I think it's French, and I'm just not going to try, but he said something excellent. He said, Once we have received superior things, indeed the ultimate and best things, why should imperfect and incomplete things detain us any longer? And the Hebrews, or the author, needed to write this to these people. He needed to write it to us. And I know we don't struggle as much as they did with the Old Covenant and going back. But think about that quote and think about this chapter in the context of, of the things that you choose each and every day. Right? Those things that are earthly or temporal or, or sinful. Over the things that we have in Christ that are eternal, better, and glorious. Like those things that we will one day see fully consummated when we see Him face to face.
So, why should imperfect and incomplete things detain us any longer? Right? Once we have received superior things. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for this time together this morning. And Father, we, Father, I ask, we ask that you would please drive these truths home to our hearts. Um, God, it's so easy for us to be concerned with the temporal, with the here and now, with some way of working so that we feel like we've uh, earned favor or, or your pleasure. Um, God, the, the new covenant gives us something so much better. It gives us Christ in all of his fullness. And so I just pray that you would help us to rest in that, to rejoice in that, and to, Father, love you and serve you because we love you, but but just love you first and love you deeply and, and be just so mindful of the reality that we have everything we could ever need in Christ. Um, and if we try to add to that, it's just it's petty. It's small. So may we just accept what we have in Christ and rejoice in that and live out of that. Um, God, we need your help in all of this for we are so easily sinful, but we pray that you would help us. In the name of Christ, amen. Amen.